Hello and welcome to another bonus episode of Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales. This is the fourth interview of five in the series, The Vernacular Voices of the Storyteller. I met with five amazing storytellers to find out what they thought about breaking down barriers between people through stories and food. In these fractured times, I wanted to look at how stories from different voices can overcome the distance between people and highlight our shared experiences, and I hope the answers from these storytellers will help. This interview is with L.M. Daney, and if you haven't heard of her before, you'll definitely want to hear more after this. Hello, um, welcome to L.M. Daney, who titles herself a teacher by day and storyteller by night. She's a published award-winning children's author of Giraffe's Eggs and the host of the weekly podcast Giraffe's Eggs and Other African Texts. Welcome to Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales. Thank you very much for having me. Um, I think um, the first question we've got really um, is in what ways do you think stories are universal? Oh, um, that's very easy. Uh, we grow up with stories, you know, as as young as whenever we hear stories, you know, about somebody's day or an anecdote or a folk tale or a fairy tale, etc. We communicate via stories, you know. So I think... Stories are the bedrock, you know, of how we communicate, how we relate to each other. It doesn't matter where we're from, that we can all relate to a good story, you know, so, yeah. Thank you. I think that's really true. I think it doesn't matter where you're from, who you are, stories are essentially what builds our sort of life experiences, aren't they? Um, I think sort of leads on from that and um, maybe we touch on it a little bit, but why do you think stories break down barriers between people? Because the human experience is a shared one, you know, um, everybody cries uh, very similar things. Uh, When we really get to the crux of it, we have a very similar experience as human beings. And I think stories help us realise that we essentially are more alike than unalike. Uh, As the late Maya Angelou said, there is a story that I read when I was at secondary school. And bear in mind, at that time, I struggled with English because I came to this country and I spoke French and I couldn't understand a word of English. But in my English lessons, we were doing Shakespeare, which is a very difficult text. But my English teacher was brilliant at, you know, explaining things and going into details. And so we did The Merchant of Venice. And in that part, there is a, a, a monologue where the merchant of Venice himself talks about his humanity, how, you know, he's a human being, you know, and, and, you know, lines that stayed with me up to today is, you know, when you tickle me, I laugh, when you prick me, I bleed. And I just thought that is so true. You know, we, we all laugh and cry the same. We, we all feel pain the same way. We all fall in love the same way. And, that that is it you know that's that's the human story that that's exactly what it is we are all the same and we can all relate and understand when we talk about our humanities thank you I think that yeah that that sort of resonates I think with me as well I think to be honest it's the fact that I think stories show us how similar we are and I think that's where some of the barriers just dissolve because people realize that everybody has like you said those, those same experiences 
um, Shakespeare is tricky. I have to say, <laughs> I, I, I started learning French when I was nine and I couldn't have done it the opposite way around when I was sort of young. I have to be honest. Oh, but, oh, I, think no. I, had, I think I had a brilliant English teacher. I don't think it was my ability or whatever. <laughs> she loved what she did and she did it very well. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, that's the effect of amazing teachers, isn't it? I think you remember things. I had an amazing history teacher when I was 10 and I think probably... He was quite traditional in terms of the way he taught, but one of the things he really taught, he loved quotes, quotes from historical figures, and that was his thing. And he used to do tests on quotes. I know more quotes from historical figures than I did about dates, and but I remember them, and I remember him. I mean, he must he must have been in his fifties then, so I suspect mm. he's no longer with us, but. I remember him and I remember him teaching and his passion for the subject, although I approached him from a different, very different place now and did sort of as I grew. But that passion he had for history and seeing those people as people, because that's what the quotes did, I think, was the quotes were like, that's a person that said that. And they thought, I mean, I didn't think at the time they probably spent about six weeks trying to put <laughs> words together to make it sound good. But that was his passion. And I think, yeah, it's a similar a similar thing. I think sort of leading on from that a little bit, why do you think it's important that we hear different voices telling stories? Because like I said, uh, stories are universal. But when you hear stories from just, you know, one type of person or one culture or one history, you tend to forget you that you are part of the human story and the human fabric. Um, and it's important to have mirrors as well as windows so what, what I say by that is mirrors to be able to see yourself in those stories so not just a human experience but people of a similar background to you or who think like you or who look like you or who have the same religion as you etc it's important because especially for children it reinforces the fact that you are real you know you your experience is real you are le legitimate is <laughs> pushing it a bit but you are an authentic being you know there's nothing wrong with you there's other people just like you but we also need mirrors and I think that is the bit that is very very important mirrors allow you to see yourself but windows allow you to see have a peep into other people's lives you know and and realize that hey I do that or hey I think like that oh hey that's pretty cool oh hey I didn't know that you know, you, you hear about, I don't know, a Japanese folktale and then you hear about the respect that the child has to show to his mom and dad and stuff. And you're like, oh, we do the same thing where I come from. Or you hear about a, um, a Norse god and then you hear about a Yoruba god and you're like, oh, my gosh, they have the same power. They, they reign over the same kingdom. So the people at the time probably saw how important it was to have thunder or to have rain or you know so I, I I'm a big fan of stories acting as mirrors and windows and we can't have those if we only have one type of story from one group of people we need everybody to throw their stories in there to be able to have those mirrors and those windows yeah that that's a really yeah I love that that's a wonderful way of putting it that's it is really true um, I grew up on stories. My mum, she always felt that fairy tales and folk tales were quite safe um, in terms of, so she would and did a lot of reading them to me. But the ones I really loved were the Br'er Rabbit stories. Mm -hmm. I loved those stories. I loved them <laughs> so much. My mum had this book and the picture, but I loved them. I loved Br'er Rabbit. I love the tricks in him, how he was so wicked, really, and got away with things. And it was wonderful. And I loved them. I never actually realised those stories came from a different culture. I didn't know because I was read them myself when I was small. So 
it's, it's and then I read and I, I quite recently had a really fantastic conversation with a storyteller um, from the Caribbean um, and another storyteller from I think South Carolina um, and they were talking to me and now I sort of know the background of the stories and having now reread the stories it makes a lot more sense but mm. those stories to me when I was a little girl were about this tricky sort of naughty animals and I just loved them but it just goes to show I mean I'm glad now I understand that what's behind them and I know where they've come from but those stories were told to me in a different from a different way I wish in a way I'd heard them from somebody whose those stories were from their from their tradition the first time but actually in a way it sort of given brought them home to me I think as an adult that you know they come from a different place I love those stories I, I love the fact that your mom exposed you to stories because because you had that basis and now finding out where those stories are from, you're interested in, you know, the background and the history. But imagine your mom never gave you those stories. You know, you, you'd there'd be no interest today. They'd be like, oh, yeah, that's nice. That's it. But because you grew up with those stories. So yeah. whether you know where they're from or you don't, I think it's still important, you know, to yeah. be rounded. And your mom did a great job. Folktales yes. and fairy tales are the best. Yes. Yeah, she was she was a bit dodgy about cosmopolitan when that came along as I was a teenager. <laughs> Actually, she was very sensible, but I don't think it was for the right reasons. I, I don't like women's magazines. I think I think they tell women a lot of stories that they don't need to hear and aren't mm. really appropriate. But you know, you're much more interested in hair when you're 14, aren't you? So <laughs> um okay. Um I don't know. This this one's a bit of a sort of an interesting question, but I think it's quite important. But it's like, what do you think stories tell us about place? Oh, that's a good question. Hmm. The reason sort of one of these questions came out, I've got a bit, maybe a bit more context, and it's probably because it's got a broad question, and I've had a lot of different answers to it. Um, is that for some people, I know that that stories are um, almost they come from the land that they're from. So you don't know about a land until you know about its stories. Mm-hmm. So for some people, if they go to a new place and they visit a new place, they go and they like, you know, check out the restaurants, check out pubs, check out like the cinemas, stuff like that. Well, all people will go to concert and you know, this is beautiful and ever, but other people want to know the stories of that place because they don't feel that place until they hear the stories, they don't feel that they're in the place. Okay. Um, I think uh, stories can tell you a lot of the reasons why there are certain customs in place. So I'll take an example, uh, Côte d'Ivoire, which is where my mother is from. You don't whistle at night, you know, and there's all sorts of stories about, you know, um, snakes coming out and biting people who were whistling, blah, blah, blah and stuff. But when, when you hear those stories, number one, you know that, OK, that might be offensive to some people or that might be seen as somebody who has no manners. So number one, you know, you know what to do and what not to do. And number two, you can tap into the people's beliefs or fears or, you know, what is important to those people. And for me and, you know, where my mom is from, we don't like snakes. (laughs) Snakes are bad news, you know, so we don't have nice, cute pets. No, no, no. Snakes, goodbye. So it helps you have a bit more of an understanding as to why people believe what they believe. I recently did a bit of research on West African mythical creatures. And one of those creatures is called an Azaze. I think I'm pronouncing it wrong, but in Togo and Ghana, Azaze. And it's a, it's a vampire-like creature. And, you know, that transforms into a fly or a firefly, you know, possesses people. And if you're possessed, um, it's also a blood sucking, you know, an, um, entity, etc. So I'm reading it and reading it, reading it and researching. And I'm thinking, why did this myth come about? Like, 
it's such a strange thing, you know. And then realizing that it's actually trying to explain malaria. It's trying to explain being bitten by a mosquito, developing malaria, which is a, a deadly disease. Sometimes you recover, sometimes you don't. And the way to kind of explain away this strange disease, you know, a, a long time ago was, well, there is a vampire, you know, that takes over people and sometimes it, it kills them, sometimes it doesn't. So you 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 re, you hear about these stories and you realize that in this place, in this city, or in with, with this people group, this is very important. So much so that they had to create an entity regarding this phenomenon that they can't explain. This is what stories do to a place. They help you see into the people's. Uh, understand people's customs, beliefs, and you just see in their mindset, we you know what, what they think, what they hold dear, what they value, what they fear and things like that. So you, you get it from I'm from um I'm from the black country in the West Midlands. And so um obviously it's a lot of mining and stuff that happens around here. So it's a bit more recent folklore, but there used to be a pub that had them on the wall. But the reasons why miners wouldn't go down the mine. And there were certain things that, and actually, like you said, if you look at them, they're fairly good explanations for like, one was like to do with like light and different lights and things. And it's to do with gas and to do with having like, when noxious gases start coming back up from the mine. Yes, they sound like superstitions. Well, actually, (laughs) they make sense. And other ones where in the Fenlands in um, sort of in East Anglia, where they have stories about all these things that inherit like the swamps and they're Mm -hmm. there at night and they come out at night. Um, and the reason that they're there is because you shouldn't walk across Fenlands with marshings yep. at night <laughs> and because it's bad. It doesn't matter. It's not about boggles and ghosties. It's about falling in the dark into water and dying. <laughs> Life saving. <laughs> also, there's like the bigger scale, as in I've now, I've lived to live. I was brought up in the countryside, so I can sort of see it a bit more, I think. But for some people, there's a sense of a sense of place. So stories a part of the land as in in a quite a deep metaphysical sense and I'm, I, I think I I can completely understand where those beliefs come from um, but I probably struggle with I've lived too long in cities I think but I think if you've lived out in the wilds in the even in this country we still have them but if you've lived out in a very deserted you know area in the wilds your um, feel and your stories will have a very different um, mm. sense of place to someone who's near cities and near things because you have this yeah almost a link with the land that is you know it's, it's almost spiritual isn't it it's yeah. almost like you're one with nature you know we yeah. say those things but yeah. it's true you, you can get lost in just looking at very tall yeah. trees and feel so small or yeah completely yeah. Or, you know look at a starry sky yeah. and just feel so taken you know yeah. it makes you want to create creatures and stories yeah, yeah. I'll give you a little bit of context for this question. I read very recently um, an article talking about how now, obviously because of the way, horrific way we treat people who come to this country um, in need of hope, help and assistance because of the terrible things that have happened to them for one way, for whatever reason that is, and because of the horrific way we deal with them, almost the only way that people can rec- get people to have some compassion and recognize is they're almost forced to tell their stories and they tell them so many times their experiences that it becomes very performative but I sort of feel that and um, for me you can gain as much empathy hearing people's stories and where they come from not their personal story so they could tell her if they're from say Syria they could tell a Syrian folktale to mm-hmm. a group of people 
and you would feel you'd feel that because you have to have empathy to understand and listen to stories you would get that without them having their performative having to tell sometimes very traumatic stories that is the context to my question what does storytelling achieve that sharing of personal narratives doesn't again very good question I think I have to go with my own you know uh, my own story with this I think when you share your own story it can it can fall on different types of soils Um, you can have the kind of heart that's like so used to hearing traumatic stories that it just it they're desensitized and so your personal story even if it's traumatic or if it's brilliant or whatever it's like oh yeah okay that's nice then you have people who have made up their mind that they because it because of what you look like or where you come from your story doesn't matter and then you have people who are just hungry for stories for the sake of listening to stories um, obviously, these are not the only types of people who, who listen to personal narratives, etc. But you do have people who just uh, who are, you know, they just want to listen to and, and be wowed and be shocked, but they're not really interested in the point of the story. Whereas when you share folk tales and fairy tales and stuff, it taps into something deeper because the majority of us would have grown up with some kind of story, you know, yeah, it might not be around the fire at midnight, but definitely you grow up with some kind of fable, some kind of proverb, you know, those kind of things. And because it sounds the same, the language, you know, moral of the story, the baddie, the goodie, etc. because it, it has a very generic kind of flow, you know, generic kind of um, structure, people can have their filters taken away and actually listen. And then when you go into the reason why you shared the story or what you think that story represents and you go into analyzing it, they're prepped, you know, their mind, you know, they're ready, they're prepped. So if I share a story, for example, like I said earlier, about the, 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 the demon that transforms into a mosquito, etc. It's just a story at first. It's like, oh my gosh, oh no, wow. Then afterwards talk about the devastating effects of malaria. You will get people listening to this and probably be more touched by this rather than if I just say, oh, you know, there is a child who, you know, got bitten by a mosquito because it didn't have a net or whatever. Um, and also you, and, and, and there's somebody else that said this, not me, uh, Chimamanda Adichie Ngozi, she's an, a, a Nigerian writer who said, you have to be careful of the, the, the single story. By me sharing my personal narrative all the time, it becomes the narrative of the people who look like me, where it actually is not. You know, there's so many different people who have different stories. But when I share a folk tale, you know, that's more universal, it's more encompassing, it's less... This is the story of these people. It's just a good story or an interesting story. And so you can kind of steer clear of the danger of that single narrative of all these people are like this, all these people are like that. They all believe this, they all do that. So I still think personal stories are powerful and important, obviously, but I, I don't know. I have a thing for stories and fairy tales. <laughs> just, but that's probably because I'm a podcaster. So there you go. <laughs> Maybe I think I, I agree with you. So my next question really is about sharing food and how in a way it helps strengthen the bond that sharing stories and experiences does. Um, I've um, sort of worked with lots of different people and friends. And I think sometimes that 
time where you just sit down and eat and talk about and have maybe have some different foods that you're not used to, even if that's just different cake, you know, that you end up chatting about things. And almost it's like, I think it's almost for me, and this is going back to a bit of a spiritual thing, obviously hospitality is really important. And I think if you've cooked for somebody and they've sat down and eaten the food that you've cooked, I think it's very difficult for that person. I know it'd be very difficult for, for me, even if they were never going to be my favourite person, <laughs> because we maybe don't have a lot in common or we've maybe, uh, you know, our political yeah. things are a little bit too different. And But I think the almost that, that bond is there. So you would if you heard something in terms of maybe they said oh so 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 and you think because you've sat and eaten their food or they've sat and eaten your food you have a little bit of more understanding of of their experiences and their life and you you would want to hear from them you wouldn't want to hear the generalized picture because you've sat and eaten with them I I um I'm not a foodie (laughs) I'm really not my palate is very limited I'm ashamed to say but uh very picky with food but the amount of times I've been pleasantly surprised, you know, where people would offer me something that I've never heard of, never seen, don't even know what it's made out of. And then I try it to make them happy. And oh, that's nice. And then you kind of, like you said, you, you feel close to people because they, they bother to take their time to make something for you. Um, you sat down, you shared a meal and usually you don't share a meal in silence. You know, you have conversations, you talk, there's laughter and those kind of moments, the more they happen, the more of a, of a, of a link, you know, you create a more of a, a, a strong bond. So food is similar to stories. You know, we all eat food. Yeah. <laughs> we all have our favorite foods, comfort foods and all of that stuff. Yeah. So just like stories, food are a unifying factor. Yeah. I think it's the one universal experience we all have to eat. I mean, even mm. if it's, even if it's not your thing, even if mm. food is like, you know, I need to have food, fuel 100%. to keep going, then but you still need it. You can't do without it. Everyone's eaten. Even if that's the one experience you've had, you might've eaten different things, but everyone mm. has to mm. eat. And and also I think as food could be a very mechanical thing, isn't it? It could just be, I'm just feeding myself just nutrients, but the majority of us eat and we find pleasure in it. You know, maybe not all the time, but there's pleasure, there's comfort. You know, you have food you go to when you're sad. You have food when you go to when uh, you're feeling very happy and you want to celebrate. You have food you remember when you were sick that your mom or your dad used to make for you. You know, yeah. we all have those little things. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. My mum my mom, my mom used to cook most things from scratch. If I was ever sick, she used to buy Heinz tomato soup and I'd have cheese toasties and so I'll say that you know it comes up in something and she said can you tell people that I used to feed you like vegetables and like <laughs> proper meals because it makes it sound like you said you know so it's terrible I always grew up with this wonderful food and my my <laughs> my memory for when I'm sick and I still do it for myself now Heinz tomato sauce and cheese toasties it's like the ultimate like when it got like a horrible cold and it's just yucky mm. and it's just like that you know yeah I can I can really relate to this. My yeah. mom is a soup expert, and um, I used to think she was. I mean, my mom's a good cook, obviously. Yeah. Uh, but we were soups. I used to think that she was the most creative person until I found out that she just took veg, boiled yeah. them, put seasoning, yeah. just blitzed the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. But it was a similar experience where you know you're not feeling well, and then she she makes you soup with a little bit of cheese in it and yeah. stuff, and it's yeah. like, oh, thank you. Oh. <laughs> I think it'll always be that, yeah. My mum says, could you try and think of some stories where you remember, like, I think it's just, I have this amazing, my mum's a really good cook and I have this fantastic background of really good food. But again, it's the, the things that come up at certain times that are, 
I had to have, she makes me tell my other story, which is I remember being my 21st birthday and we went to Bath for the day because it's so beautiful and lovely there. And she took me for lunch. Again, I'm stressing it was my 21st birthday. We knew this all the time. Mm-hmm. And we went and we went to um, the pump rooms and they were the, by the, the waters and stuff. And it's beautiful in that. It's sort of classical, Georgian, gorgeous. And we had lunch and there was a, a quartet playing and it was just a beautiful, luxury, wonderful, civilised yeah. experience. <laughs> and they said, you know, they brought over bread to have with soup as a starter. And they brought it over and the smell of this bread was like caraway seed um, in the bread. And it was beautiful. But that smell is from my mum because my mum used to make caraway seed cake when I was little. And so when I smell caraway, it makes me think of my mum and nice things and cake. I don't really have much of a sweet tooth, but that caraway is like my spice memory for my mum. <laughs> but it's really deeply embedded and it's there. So she said, can you tell the story where we were out having a nice lunch, please? <laughs> rather than the, yeah. Okay, mom. I'm really liking this woman. <laughs> there's it triggers you smell especially for food triggers memories really but yeah I grew up in a we just talked about how sharing feed um sort of leads to sharing stories like you said you sit and you talk and and and, and, and you learn things from people and you laugh and that's important too um but do you have a story of a food you've experienced which touches on any of this or just a story where food's fixed like an experience in your mind <laughs> Um, am I allowed to say this? Yes. <laughs> when my mom hears this, she'll be like, what? Um, <laughs> so um, so we lived in France for a while and then we went to Ivory Coast, uh, Cote d'Ivoire. And so my mom was an accountant by day, but then she really liked, you know, trying new things, new ventures. So she decided that she would um, sell um, lemon juice, but, you know, she'd put a bit of sugar. So basically lemonade, basically, because my grandmother had uh, a huge plot of land where she just had wild lemon trees growing and she never did anything with them because they were very bitter so my mom was like I'm going to make a business out of it so she used to make the lemon juice and you know we had a huge freezer that we brought over from France so she would you know make loads in the bags and put it in there and freeze it and then so when people buy it it would be like ice lollies you know and so she did this for a while and she would add this type of sugar and this and that it was lovely so (laughs) I used to you know, sneak into the kitchen and drink like, I don't know how many every time. And so my mom for a long time was thinking, what happened? You know, like I made this many, I saw this many and it's finished, but I'm not making my money back. And I'm just sitting there kind of like, oh, I wonder what happened. But I'm the one drinking all of her produce and so my mom kind of closed shop she stopped selling the lemon juice and everything and never found out that I was the culprit I used to drink it and then stash the the bag the thing under my bed and then when she'd be out or something I'd just gather all of them put it in the bin tie it up and then just throw it away and it was just my, how old was that I was probably like nine nine ten doing this and then just and now thinking about it I'm like oh gosh I still love lemonade I still drink it very often and mommy I'm sorry <laughs> but it was me I'm the one who just destroyed your business <laughs> Oh dear, it's out now. That's a wonderful story. Thank you so much. You can have, oh yeah, we, we, maybe we just won't tell anymore. It'll be fine. And that was the end of our interview. I really hope you enjoyed it. I had such a great time. And I learned so much. 
if you want to hear more from LM, she's got her own website, which is lmdaney.com. She also has a fantastic podcast called Giraffes, Eggs and Other African Tales with African legends, myths and folk and fairy tales. It's so wonderful. Also, her award-winning book is available everywhere. That's Giraffes, Eggs. All of these links will be in the podcast notes. I really hope you've enjoyed this bonus episode. There'll be one final one next week, as well as a normal, regular episode. It's been lovely to have you listen. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like to read more about the podcast or find anything else about it, you can go on my website, that's hestiaskitchen.co.uk, or you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at fairytalesfood. I'm happy to hear any of your feedback about the podcast or any ideas you might have. And thanks again for listening to this episode of Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales. Mm-hmm.